0: Hey, Kingdom Roots friends, I want to invite you to a special event Northern Seminary is bringing back by popular demand. It's our Taste of Northern, and it's going to be happening May 20th through the 23rd. We're opening all our classes that week in May, and it doesn't matter if you're in the Netherlands or Japan, because check this out, we literally have students join us from both of those places. See, everyone can participate from anywhere in the Taste of Northern via Northern Live, You just need an internet connection. Now we're so excited at the thought of having you join us for one of the classes between May 20th through 23rd that we will send you the first lecture Scott did on Paul's pastoral theology for free, as well as give you a $250 scholarship toward a degree program at Northern. That's a value of over $550 that you're getting absolutely free just for signing up and attending the Taste of Northern event. Just go to seminary.edu forward slash taste to sign up. We look forward to being with you and having you get a taste of our northern community. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a lecture Scott did at the Church for the Sake of Others conference on the Trap of Bad Biblical Narratives.
1: In talking about the dangers, I have found in my life that one of the most important things in Bible reading um, is to learn to read the Bible as a narrative or a story from, uh, with a plot from beginning to end. For 12 years, I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I replaced Wayne Grudem, it's one of my my favorite stories, the the teaching position didn't quite go in the direction Wayne would have preferred, but I did. Wayne moved from New Testament studies to systematic theology, and um, I got hired to be his replacement, so every time I see Wayne, I tell him that, and he just laughs. But I taught New Testament studies, and at Trinity, we were so specialized that I taught synoptic gospels. Every now and then, they let me teach Galatians. I taught Colossians, and I taught 1 Peter. That's it. Then they decided I needed to teach more, so I got to teach what Trinity called leftovers. And that was, you know, there's the gospels, and there's Acts and Paul, and then there's what's left. And I got to teach what's left. So I never even taught the whole New Testament when I was at Trinity. I never taught, a course, on the Apostle Paul because we had D.A. Carson and Doug Moo and Murray Harris and Grant Osborne, and they were all fighting over getting to teach Paul. Poor me, I had to teach Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, it was a a good thing. It was a good thing. And I used to tell him I was going to teach Paul when I finished with Jesus, but I was in no particular hurry. And I did not teach the Apostle Paul until I got to Northern Seminary, because when I went to North Park University and taught for 17 years, there was someone else who taught Paul. So I did not teach Paul until seven years ago. It was the first time I ever taught a course just on the Apostle Paul. But in teaching college students, which is a difficult task, I got to tell you, Exodus and Leviticus for college students is something special, <laughs> especially purity laws. You got you to make it interesting. So... Uh, what I developed as I was teaching college students was I, at first I called them hot chapters. You just need to know the most important chapters of the Bible well. And I gave them a list of 50 hot chapters. Then I developed that into more of a narrative arc of how to read the Bible, to put it all together with a, with a narrative. And the narrative that was uh, running rampant at the time was the, I call it the CFRC, you know, this creation, fall, redemption, consummation. This is the standard narrative that people frequently use for reading the entire Bible. But in in teaching the whole Bible every semester, which I taught college students every semester, the whole Bible in one semester, it's not easy, but uh, you learn what not to talk about. It was teaching the students and it was reading more Bible and not so much specialization of the Gospels and First Peter, which I had at Trinity. And then Tom Wright's book came out, Volume 1, uh, The New Testament the People of God, which put together a narrative that made a lot of sense for parts of the Bible. Then Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew wrote a book on putting the Bible together. And all of that with uh, my increasing awareness of non-canonical Jewish texts uh, made me develop into a more of a narrative approach to reading the Bible. So I developed another narrative. I, did, I don't like the CFRC approach because I think the only place it really works is Romans and Galatians. No one else in the Bible is using that narrative. No one in the Old Testament worries about the fall. I know, I know that's surprising, but no one talks about it like this. It's Romans 5, 12 through 21 where we got the CFRC narrative, and we use it from there. And so it's a value in some ways. But I wanted to develop a narrative that would get us to the Bible's resolution. And uh, I developed uh, a narrative, and he- here was my basic logic. If the solution is Jesus is the Messiah, then we need a narrative that creates a desire and has a solution that is the Messiah. CFRC does not do that. You know what the solution to CFRC is? Salvation. Personal salvation. Whoever brings it. So I wanted to develop a narrative. And I developed this narrative um, that I thought was clever, that it it didn't work very well because of a public conversation with an Anglican guy named Tom Wright. Some people have heard of him. I I called it Plan A, Plan B and plan A revised. And plan A is from Genesis 1 through 1 Samuel 8. You know, there's that critical passage in 1 Samuel 8 where Samuel comes to God, Yahweh, and says, you know, they want a king. And Yahweh says to Samuel, I think this is is my translation. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. Let's humor them and give them a king and see how they like it. So a king comes in, in the pages of the Bible, like it's something God doesn't really want. But he gives him a king, and then he uses the king, out of which grows the Messiah as the king. So then I saw Jesus as plan A revised, we're back to the kingdom of God. Well, people don't like that idea of plan B. There's just too much Calvinism written into the fabric of our being to like the idea that God slightly shifted his plans. And I was having a public conversation with Tom Wright, and he did not like plan B. So I thought, well, if Tom doesn't like it, I better change my mind. So now I call it theocracy, monarchy, and Christocracy. Still the same thing, but I'm, I don't have plan B. <laughs> Is that we have a theocracy, and then we have a monarchy. Monarchy. Out of the monarchy with the prophets grows Jesus as the Messiah, which is a Christocracy, and that rules the church. And I think this narrative works for the Bible. But in working with the Apostle Paul and working with the book of Hebrews, I realized that monarchy, uh, theocracy, monarchy, Christocracy is a narrative that erupts into kingdom theology. But not every hermeneutic of the New Testament is a kingdom theology. They don't all use the word kingdom. Paul just barely scratches the surface with this word. So if you want kingdom to be the rule of the Bible, you're going to be colonizing other people's language games. So I think what we have to do is develop a large plot so that we can teach this on a regular basis. Every passage that comes up that we preach on, we can connect to the Bible's larger plot. It's not that hard. You don't have to tell the whole plot every time. But you can give some of the plot to give sense to the particular passage. But every author of the New Testament, Paul, Peter, James, Hebrews, and John in Revelation, Jude... Not much of it, not plot there, but that's all right. Uh, Every one of these authors has a narrative at work in their theology. And every one of them is slightly different, though I think Peter's plot and narrative is very similar to Paul's. The writer of Hebrews has a completely different set of categories. It won't work to talk about kingdom theology in the book of Hebrews. You've got to do something else. So we have to create a sensitivity. Now, this is something that we learn all right, you read Walter Brueggemann. You mentioned Walter Brueggemann. He is so fun to read. And he cusses like a Lutheran, like, like uh, Was down there at Duke, okay? So you read him, and it's stimulating. He creates all these ideas about prophetic imagination, Jeremiah and Isaiah, brilliant books. They're fun to read. And his idea of theology, and now he's into... Uh, the Bible's understanding of money and wealth. He's, he's doing some good things there. Um, and then you read someone like N.T. Wright, and he's operating with the different categories. And yet you get something from Brueggemann, and you get something from Wright, and you sort of bricolage them together into your own theology, or you use some Brueggemann when you're in Isaiah, and you use some N.T. Wright when you're in Luke. This is, I think, the way the Bible itself works. It's not a systematic theology. It is a narrative with episodes of different authors who speak to, their way, to in their day in their way. That's the way it is. And you can try to bring it all together into a systematic theology, but when you do it, you'll be ripping the language game out of some author. You won't be respecting Jesus or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You won't be respecting Paul or you won't be respecting the author of the book of Hebrews. So I believe we have to be sensitive to these uh, narratives. So a basic plot, yes, we have that. There are dozens of biblical summaries in the Bible. You read the genealogy of 1 Chronicles 1 through 8. I know you don't do that very often. Please don't try to preach on it. If you do, you better be pretty good because that's going to be a challenge. And you read Matthew's genealogy, and you read Luke's genealogy, and you realize they're really putting the Bible together in, a, in different ways. And those narratives need to, can be respected. So those are intimations. There are also summaries like Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is, is preaching. He goes through the Bible. It's not very evangelistic because he gets killed at the end. Well, he could have been evangelistic, but he just, instead of inviting them to receive Jesus into their heart, he just turns on them and tells them they're all a bunch of sinners and they're going to hell, and boom, it's all over for him. Um, but if you read that, that's a narrative approach to the Bible, and, and, and those sorts of summaries show up in the, in the page of the Bible at, at different times. But here's the big thing for me, is the gospel is the hermeneutic for Jesus And the apostles, the gospel. We have to figure out what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Well, the Bible tells us what the gospel is. First Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. It says that Jesus died, the Messiah died, he was buried, he was raised according to the scriptures, died according to the scriptures, and Depends where you end the passage. Some people go all the way to verse 28. It's a wrapping up of all of history where the the son hands the kingdom over to the father. That's the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Paul, at the end of his life, summarizes the gospel this way. Listen to these expressions, three of them. Remember King Jesus, descended from David, uh, raised from the dead. That's all it is. That's the gospel. And then he says, this is my gospel. Now, I, I believe Paul knew what he was doing. And I really believe that's Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel was to tell the story of Jesus, that it's the fulfillment of Israel's narrative, that it is climaxed in the resurrection of Jesus, and it is that Jesus is the descendant of David, which means he's the king. So you go to the sermons in the book of Acts. There are several of them, six, seven, or eight, depending on whether you count Stephen and whether you count the Areopagus discussion, which is sort of a seeker-friendly original service. All right? It doesn't quite get there, but it brings up resurrection. We have the sermons of Peter in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4, And we have Paul's sermons in 13 and 14. And you put them together and they look like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 5. The gospel sermons of the early church were to tell the story of Jesus. To gospel is to tell people about Jesus. We have created a narrative that we call the gospel, which is an attempt to use Todd's word, It is an attempt to get people into a condition of liminality, which is to make them feel lost so that we can give them the gospel. It's a packaged deal. And this is the way it works. God loves you. That's a good beginning. This was added by Bill Bright, who in a conversation with a businessman told him you have to begin with a positive message. Prior to Bill Bright, People did not begin gospel sermons by affirming people in the congregation. They did not begin that way. It wasn't good news first. It was tough news right away. You're a sinner. So we say that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, even though that's not always true. (laughs) Ask Mark, ask Mark Galley, I Christianity not day. He said, my family all became Christians and our lives, were, our lives were ruined. I've heard him tell this story many times. So, God loves you, but you're a sinner. And therefore, because you're a sinner, you are damned. That's liminality. And it's an attempt to move from a positive to a negative where you create tension in a person. And if you're a good storyteller and you've got the right kind of stories, you can create that sense of liminality. Then, because people are in liminality, you can then say, but God still loves you, and he sent his son to die for you, and if you receive him into your heart, you will be saved, and when you die, you will go to heaven. I grew up with this every Sunday, twice, (laughs) morning and evening, and sometimes on Wednesday night, if our pastor thought there were enough teenagers there... He went for it again. All right? Here's what I'm willing to tell you. I think most of what was said in that packaged bundle of rhetoric designed to create liminality is basically true, but no one in the New Testament would have known that as the gospel. I believe that. What they knew the gospel was was to tell the story about Jesus it is to tell people that he lived and that he died and that he died unjustly and he went to the grave, but God broke the powers of death and raised his son from the dead and he is alive like Aslan roaming in Narnia, right? And that's the good news is that death is not the last word, that the resurrection is the last word. And we are in Eastertide and we announce resurrection. That's our story. I learned, teaching college students, 8 o'clock in the morning, Tuesday and Thursday, North Park University, Jesus of Nazareth. 60 students, on average, were in my class. 8 o'clock. Class actually began at 7.45, but I always told them I wouldn't start till 8, and they thought I was the Messiah for giving them 15 (laughs) more minutes. I calculated that I had two minutes to get their attention because it's eight o'clock in the morning. But this is something that I learned by experience. I talked Jesus and students gave their lives to Jesus. On average, between 10 and 20 students a year would make some kind of commitment to follow Jesus. And I didn't even know what I was doing. I remember thinking, I'm not even preaching the gospel. And then I realized I was. The gospel is Jesus. It is to tell the story of Jesus. This is what we have going for us. This is why James Faulkner was impressed. Because he encountered this story that embodied the story of Jesus in the Apostle Paul. And if you watch that movie, which I think is a great movie. If you watch that movie, you will see that Paul is advocating for the way of Christ over and over with the Roman church. And that's what this movie is about. I won't give any more spoilers. It's to tell the story of Jesus. So I would encourage you to start with the gospel. Now, here's the, here's the problem. If you read the Bible the way Jesus read the Bible, or if you read the Bible the way Paul read the Bible, or if you read the Bible the way the writer of Hebrews or Peter or any of the apostles read the Bible you will fail seminary classes (laughs) because they don't do historical critical exegesis. They don't care about context. They know what's true, and therefore they find it. Now, I don't know, is Wiss in here? here? There's Wiss. Wiss's brother is Richard Hayes, and Richard Hayes says the Apostle Paul would fail my exegesis class. Did he, have you heard him say this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I will before the day's out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just heard it from me. But he says, because Paul doesn't do things the way we do. And I believe that we need to adopt apostolic exegesis that begins with the kerygma. It's Christotelic exegesis or it's Christocentric. We know the story and when you know the story of a novel, you know how to put the other parts together. Now, you may not discover it till you get to the end, but the next time you read it, you know, the, you know what's happening. And that's what we know. We know that the solution to this story is the gospel about Jesus Christ. So the early church, from Jesus to the apostle Paul to Peter to Hebrews to John, into the second century with the patristics, they all found Christ in the Old Testament in ways that Old Testament professors are revolted by because they knew where they stood. I believe we need to adopt this. We need to... Not that we need to get rid of historical exegesis. I teach that. But we're not done when we've studied the context Of Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 20 in the Jewish world. We need to let that flourish through what we know to be true in the creed and the Regula Fidei. We need to let the gospel itself transform our reading of these texts so that Jesus becomes central in how we understand the Bible. All right, a few more comments. What time we have here? All right. I want to summarize some of this stuff on narrative with this. Kingdom in Jesus is only one narrative of the Bible. There are many narratives in the Bible. If you, Andy Crouch found a narrative about culture making in the Bible. It was kind of disgusting to me at times. I thought he was missing some things, but he explored the whole Bible very well in light of culture. You can explore the Bible in light of the theme of materialism and possessions and money and find different themes. So there's more than one narrative that runs throughout the pages of the Bible that we need to put together. Kingdom is only one narrative and it's largely connected to the synoptic gospels. To make that the whole narrative is to distort the Bible. We need to develop a kingdom theology that is more redolent with the whole pages of the Bible. And I want to bring up these points because Todd brought this up today when he said that kingdom was a reality in the ancient world. If you study the word basileia in the ancient world, and the Hebrew word is malkut, you study basileia in Greek, kingdom, you can just look up the word kingdom, you will discover something very, very disappointing about the Old Testament. It has a very simple meaning, and it's always the same. It means nation. Always. It's a nation, and a nation, in the, in, it's a kingdom. It's that kind of kingdom. Right? George Ladd had trouble with this, because he was fighting dispensationalism. I don't think dispensationalism is the problem today. Kingdom in the Bible has five themes connected to it. There is no kingdom without all five of these themes. The first is you have to have a king. In the Old Testament, basileia, Malkut, you always had a, a human king. So you have kings like David. He's a king and he's got a kingdom. The second thing in, the, in the Bible then, uh, you can have God as king. There's a kingdom of God in the Old Testament, not very often, but kingdom of Yahweh shows up. And in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the king and he hands it over to his father. So the Trinitarian God becomes the king. The second theme for a kingdom to exist is you have to have a king who rules. Kings who don't rule are called bloggers. <laughs> all right? They have no rule. They just have space all right, in the Internet. You have to rule. Ruling in the Bible is one of the critical factors. And sometimes kingdom is reduced to ruling. And this is a huge mistake. Ruling in the Bible has two elements to it. The king of the Bible, God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, rules first by ransoming or redeeming or saving. And as a result of saving the people, the children of Israel from Egypt, and as a result of Jesus saving us through the cross and resurrection... Then they not only rule by saving, they rule by governing. This is where lordship language comes in in the Bible. So a king is someone, God, Jesus, Father, Son, and the Spirit, who rules by way of saving people and then governing their lives. First, you have to have a king. Secondly, you have to have a rule. Third, you have to have a people. Kings who rule without a people aren't kings. That's called exile, all right? You're in exile when you rule without a people. So, there is a people in the Bible, Israel and the church. And so, when you quoted Miroslav Volf this morning, and he connected kingdom and church, I was, I was ready to say amen, all right? Because in the pages of the Bible, the kingdom is Israel, that's the kingdom in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that kingdom is the church. So that there is a king who rules a people, and that's the church. The fourth element of a king, in the, of a kingdom, is a law. Kings give laws, people don't vote on laws. Nobody did that till Baron de Montesquieu in the 18th century in France, right? Prior to that, kings made laws, and Senate in Rome, but they were governed by an emperor largely. So that they made laws. The king, he, he there is a king who rules a people by giving them a law. In the Old Testament, it's the old Moses, uh, the law of Moses. In the New Testament, it has two versions largely: the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, and the teachings of the apostles in their letters that you could call life in the spirit. And the fifth element of the Bible on kingdom is there's a land. You know how important the land promise is in the Old Testament. There is no kingdom without a land. Now, the land promise in the New Testament is subdued. And so there's lots of debate about this, and there's no reason to pretend like we should have too much confidence of what it means. I tend to think as the temple morphs and expands, which the temple is the land of the lands, you know, as as a physical space. It's the center of the land promise. As the temple morphs into Jesus becoming, I think Tom Wright called it, Jesus was a mobile temple. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in the teachings of the Apostle Paul and directly in the book of Hebrews, we become the temple. So the temple, if the temple is expanded to be the people, and the people can be spread out throughout the whole world, then the land promise, I think, follows a similar pattern. It's not clear. So I don't want to get into an argument about it, uh, because I'll give in to you if you want to disagree. I'll just say, you're right, I'm wrong. That's fine. Let's move on to something else. But I I would say that. So the five elements of a kingdom, a king who rules by saving and governing and he rules a people who are redeemed and therefore he gives them a law and they rule in physical space. I believe that wherever we occupy physical space as the people of Jesus, we are fulfilling the land promise in the Bible, All right? So, So gathered together tonight, we are the land of Israel in sp- taking up, occupying space in the world as redeemed space. So this leads to the question, what is the relationship of the kingdom to the church? And this is my conclusion. I've argued this for a long time because I think this is what the Bible teaches. There is no kingdom outside the church. The church is the kingdom because kingdom people are redeemed. Only those who are redeemed by Jesus are redeemed. Only redeemed people can be kingdom people. They're saved. So uh, I believe that we we need more kingdom language, but we need kingdom language connected to church far more often. I call the people who don't connect the kingdom to the church skinny jeans kingdom people. Skinny jeans kingdom people think the kingdom is whenever good people do good things in the public sector for the common good, they're doing kingdom work. And... Your church is filled with these people. This is the mode of life in the American evangelical church. Volunteering, getting people to show up on a Saturday to learn evangelism lessons is a dicey game. If you say we're going to go work in a soup kitchen, half the church might show up and all the skinny jeans people will show. And this is where we live today. And it's sad to me because I think the empathy of the skinny jeans crowd is marvelous. And their concern for justice and reaching out to people who are marginalized, if we want to call them that, they love to do this. And this is a good thing. But that's not kingdom work if it's not bringing people under the lordship and redemption of Jesus and bringing people back to the church. So we need need that, but we need that circle to be completed as to bring people back into the church. The narrative of the Bible then is very important. Paul uses a slightly different narrative. He is more interested in what he calls the mystery. The mystery for Paul is the inclusion of Gentiles in the people of God, and he is out and about trying to convince Gentiles that the Jewish Messiah is the Messiah of the Gentiles as well. And he's going out preaching the gospel to Gentiles.